0: It counts among the biggest gold deposits in the world. And now, uh, what is it, 30 years after we first found the deposit, it still uh, hasn't been worked in any way. I could say nobody's yet put a shovel in the ground.
1: Welcome to Polar Podcasts, where you'll hear stories from geologists who've spent their careers, their lives, exploring and studying the remarkable and remote geology of Greenland. Why did they become fascinated with Greenland? What were the problems and the discoveries that drove them? And what was it like working in these remote places, where few people venture, even now? I'm Julie Holz. In this episode, we hear more from Kent Brooks, Emeritus Professor at the Geological Museum in Copenhagen. After a sabbatical working in Papua New Guinea in the mid-1980s, Kent returned to working in East Greenland, and the next phase in the story of understanding the Scareguard intrusion, discovering gold.
0: Well, I'd returned from from Papua New Guinea in the summer of 1986, and uh, GGU were having an expedition to East Green at that time, and uh, I was hired to uh, as a sort of economic geologist. The idea was that the mapping geologists, when they went around, if they found something of the economic ge- interest, they would not waste time on that, but they would tell me about it, I would go and look look at it. And in this way, I came to look at uh, look at. Uh, a number of things like ru- rubies in uh, metamorphic rocks south of matavik perils in the granites around around uh, Gak, and uh, several several promised economic prospects around Skagod in the uh, area. Well I was contacted I was contacted by a chap called Bob Gadicot who had set up a company, a Canadian, uh, actually a, a Brit, who'd emigrated to Canada and set up a company there called Platinova. And he'd seen a paper that I wrote back in 1973, I think, on the plate uh, tectonic situation in East Greenland, in which I'd used the... Uh, I'd, I'd pointed out that the cagas fjord might be what was called a failed arm. It was a rift valley which had failed to spread.
1: When continents break up... They move apart, forming rift valleys. In some cases, there are three rifts that meet at a central point, but sometimes one of those rifts will stop spreading apart. This is called a failed rift.
0: Well, the other two rift valleys uh, spread to form the North Atlantic Ocean. Well this caught his eye because uh, somewhere it, people believed that uh, ore deposits might be found in, in, in failed arms. And so he'd taken out a concession on the area and he suggested that we work together. The survey and his company worked together. Well uh, that was okay and uh, at that time he worked under incredible, incredibly primitive conditions they he came with two two young canadian guys and they uh, shared a helicopter rides with us and that and they, they lived in a they lived in a camp which was largely consisted of a tarpaulin strung from a sandstone cliff and that was that was okay if the weather was good but when it poured down there, there tended to be a waterfall coming down the cliff face on one side of the, of the room we were living in mm-hmm. anyhow we, uh, we decided that. Uh, Scaregod was not really a very interesting place to look at because it had already been so uh, studied in detail that a much more promising uh, place to look would be the cap Edward Holm intrusion, which is many times larger than S and uh had not been looked at in much detail and we thought there might be uh, there might be odd deposits associated with that well. Uh, I belonged to the survey in Platynova. We spent a lot of time going over the Cap Edward Holm intrusion. And uh, then we had a period of bad weather. And Bob, who was uh, reluctant to have his... his, two young Canadians being paid by him and not doing anything suggested they fitted in the time by going to Skagord. at this time we couldn't we couldn't fly across the fjord because of bad visibility but we could flip from, uh, from the camp in Surdale and down to Skagord quite easily so he put his two chaps on to looking at Skagord, and they went around and collected stream sediment samples and grab samples and things and uh, really it was a bit of occupational therapy anyhow I was quite surprised when he called called me up I mean the survey was uh, was slow in getting assays done. Quite naturally platted over they had they had assays of the summer samples done within weeks of getting back to Canada. And Bob called me up and said, Well you know what the most promising thing is we found all the summer is that it was the stream sediment sample we took at Scargod." by be, be, below Fabenza's glacier, they all returned high gold anomalies. Well, that was a, that was a new one on me. And uh, it was decided that we would go next year and chase this up. The Greenland Survey had backed out of it by now, so uh, I was back running expeditions for the university on uh, on research council money. Anyhow, we uh, it was a rather classic example of geochemical prospecting because they took uh, they took they took this. Uh, sediment samples from from Forbinders glacier and analyzed and saw there were gold anomalies in there and uh, then we used our analysis to figure out where, why the gold anomalies were there and we quickly we quickly worked out they were coming from a from an area up on the side of uh, the side of the mountain above and we uh, localized a thin a thin horizon which had uh, elevated gold values at the time we uh, took took samples at vertical vertical profiles of samples at about uh, half a meter intervals and then sent them off to uh, Toronto. We had a plane connection once a week on Saturday. We sent off the samples one Saturday and then we got the results back the following Saturday. And uh, we quickly found that uh, there was a horizon there with very elevated gold contents. I don't want to quote any figures right now because I can't, I can't remember them. But... Uh, there were marked gold peaks in there, and it was of great interest. And uh, we always, we always got the results on a Saturday, uh, and so Saturday night was we got got good, 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 uh, big numbers back. And we always had a party on Saturday night uh, where we sang and drank in the cook tent and, uh, and did press ups and other manly sports. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on Sunday morning, Bob, the president, would uh, would uh, cook as eggs Benedict. If the gold numbers were good, yes. Well, uh, that was the uh, the first the first year, ninety or the second year, should we say, nineteen nineteen eighty seven. And obviously, when we got this far, the uh, the next the next thing to do would be to drill it. And Platinova started drilling the following year and uh, made several drill holes um, up to a kilometre in length. And I uh, I was always surprised by by. Uh, I mean, I was told when I was a student that the the geothermal gradient
1: the increasing temperature with increasing depth beneath the surface of the Earth.
0: The geothermal gradient is about 30 degrees per kilometre. And uh, I guess you don't think too much about this when you're a student. But when you're standing in the freezing, freezing temperature in East Greenland and you have uh, water coming up out of a, a kilometre deep drill hole and it's 30 degrees warm, you, it really, you think, what the, what, what the hell is this hot water doing here? <laughs> I mean you know you know that if you go down a kilometer, it going to be thirty degrees. it's quite simple, <laughs> <laughs> but somehow when you're talk to the student it doesn't sink in anyway we did patted over, did drilling did drilling for several years there and uh, they subsequently branched out and uh, started looking at cap Edward Holm again and then they uh, then they pulled out because they got they got more interested in the zinc deposits at Citronen and fjord mm-hmm. and various, various other schemes that Bob had. When we found gold in the scarecrow intrusion, I thought that it would be reasonable that uh, people in Greenland knew that they uh, might might have an important gold mine in in the near future. I was very optimistic in those days. And I knew very well that mining companies don't like like, uh, publicity unless they're able to manage it themselves. So uh, I was quite aware that uh, that, uh, if I wrote something in the papers it would not be approved of. But anyhow I decided to do it, so I I wrote wrote this article which was designed for Jyllands the uh, Aarhus newspaper. I uh, decided to to go there because the the Aarhus newspaper is rather more interested in Greenlandic stuff than the, uh, the, the Copenhagen newspapers. And I happened to be at Orchus and uh, I took took the, the article I'd written down to the, the paper office on a Thursday, I think it was, and uh, delivered it to them. They said, we're not, we won't be publishing it this Sunday. It was designed for the Sunday edition, I should say. We won't be publishing it this Sunday. We've got something this Sunday and we're filled up for this Sunday but we'll keep it by us and publish it in the coming time. Sometime when we have space. Anyhow, I went away and they... Went, went back home, maybe on the Friday. On the Sunday morning, I made the telephone, the telephone rang at 8 o'clock in the morning. And they said, uh, this is TV2. Can we do an interview with you now? And I said, uh, I said I, I, I was still in bed. And uh, not, not really. I, I, I And I was confused. And uh, they put the phone down. And then... Uh, Come nine o'clock, they rang again and they said, we've just landed in Kastrup and we're on our way up to see you. <laughs> so, uh I think I think TV two were based in were based in uh, Ordens or somewhere in to that time. I don't quite remember, but uh, yeah, lo and behold, just after nine o'clock, this TV crew arrived, journalists and photo- for- for- cameramen, and all this, all the paraphernalia. Uh, I wonder "What the hell is it all about?" They said, "It's about this gold in Greenland." And so, uh, my daughter, who. Uh, Generally, God, I went out. You in those days, she was a teenager. Went out onto town, and she generally didn't get up until lunchtime on Sundays. She became aware there was a TV crowd in there, and so she she got up and put some makeup on and came down and uh, made herself useful. And I sat there and gave an interview about the gold in Greenland, and it was it was a nightmare. The phone, the phone rang clear four times during the day, and then at uh, at eleven o'clock at night, suddenly there was a ring ring on the door, but it turned out to be it turned out to be journalists from Biliblad, or Extra blader or Extrabladet. What's it called? Extrabladet, uh, and they wanted an interview too. And they, so, uh, so anyhow, I'd finished it. was about 1 o'clock before I'd finished with them. Oddly enough, extra-bladed, they, uh, uh, they, they, they produced what turned out to be one of, the, one of the most accurate descriptions of what I'd said of any newspaper. They're, uh, they're famed for uh, pub- 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 publishing topless girls and uh, sex stories and things like that. And uh, I think with some justification, it could be called the Gutter Press. But in this particular case, they, produced, they didn't actually say much. But the, uh, everything they said was, was qu- completely accurate, and I always recall the uh, the journalist saying to the uh, saying to the f- photographer, uh, "Tom take, take a lot of pictures. There should be some air in the text." <laughs> Anyhow. I found out next morning that the the whole of the Danish press was filled with stories about r- riches of gold in Greenland, and that the telephone was ringing from morning till night. And uh, even the even the the uh, Wall Street Journal had a a big a big a, a, an article there saying that Kent Brooks had found the biggest the biggest gold one of the world's biggest gold deposits. I never at any any point in my career suggested it was me that found it. But anyhow, that's the way. That's the way Wall Street Journal reported <laughs> it. <laughs> and it is in fact, it is in fact what would what call called a mega deposit. It's one of the, it is one of the world's largest gold deposits. It's a low-grade deposit. It's, uh, it, the gold levels are very, very low, but on the other hand there's an enormous tonnage of material, so the total gold is, uh, is very, very great. It, it, mount, it counts among the, 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 the biggest gold deposits in the world. Unfortunately, because, because the, uh, the stuff is so disseminated, the gold is so disseminated it has to, um, it, it, it required a lot of investment of uh, a large mining operation to get it out. And now, uh, what is it, 30 years after we first found the deposit, it still it still uh, hasn't been worked in any way. I could say nobody's yet put a shovel in the ground. So that was the, uh, the story of gold. Well, uh, yeah, uh, more to more to that actually. The... Uh, I should talk, talk about the uh, Greenlandic dispute. One of the reasons for making it public was so that Greenlanders would know what was going on. And uh, particularly in Tassilac, the uh, if a mine came there, this would of course be a great, a great source of employment to them and uh, it would be of interest to them. But immediately, a, a, a controversy broke out between Tasiilaq and Ittoqqortoormiit where the uh, Tasilak claimed that the, the gold deposit was in their commune, where Iterkotormit claimed that the com- commune Grense
1: the municipal boundary
0: went down the centre of Kangaklusrak fjord, and so it was actually an Iterkotormit commune, and uh, Tasilak argued that it must be in their commune because they had hunt, they financed hunting parties to go there, and it was clearly, clearly part of their commune, and it was 400 kilometres from and no people from in had ever been that far so it couldn't possibly be part of their commune and I went to a meeting out in lbu for the uh, the uh scoresby sun co- committee it's called where the uh, the mayor of the mayor of uh, Jacob and the mayor of itokotoid Amelia masson uh went at it to against uh, uh, get the hammer and tongs were uh, media shouted at Jakob, Jakob you're a liar, talk like that. <laughs> Anyhow this is a lot of not Political stuff was set in motion here. Jacob Siversen for example, wanted to uh, wanted to blame blame Platinova for uh, driving up the wildlife. The, the, the hunters there found over the years that the number of bears they killed had gone down from a hundred and hundred and twenty so a year to something like five a year, and they ascribed this to the fact that uh, that Platinova had flying their helicopter over and had driven the bears away. There are, in fact, other interpretations. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I think I think it was Johan Chemnitz, the, uh, the self-styled president of Greenland.
1: This should actually be Jonathan Motzfeldt,
0: who uh, took this up, and he uh, he knew that Stanford University, of California, a rich university, and my colleague Dennis Byrd from Stanford, who had worked worked with me in Platinova and various others on the, on the scare gold, gold deposit. Uh, been quite prominent there and he decided that uh, decided that maybe this was a, a line of action. So he, uh, he ra- raised a lawsuit against the president of Stanford University for the recompense of a million dollars. A lot, lot of, lot of, lot of, lots of hunting rights and uh, around Kangatlukswak, and Dennis was r- really upset. He Got called up to the president's office, and a lawsuit of a million dollars would have been made against him. Anyhow, this was all quieted down for a while because, uh, because uh, I, I believe—I mean, I don't know, don't know exactly how it happened—but somebody in somebody presumably in Copenhagen told uh, Chemnitz...
1: Actually, Jonathan Motz felt
0: that this. Uh, that he couldn't do this sort of thing. That the uh, the home rule in Greenland at that time was uh, was not 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 allowed to uh, participate in international politics. Mm. That international politics would be handled from Copenhagen. It may well be different now. But in those days, uh, the the government in Nook had nothing to do with uh, with defence. Actually, also minerals at that time and uh, and foreign relations and one or two other things but anyhow the whole thing has turned up this hornet's nest where people are eating through their throats oh. and looking at uh, opportunities to raise money from it all kinds of pretenses and some years later I happened to be at Skergaard in the summertime and there's a, these these uh, motorboats from, from Tassilak are up there and I, I saw that uh, saw that Jacob Sivertsson was there and I thought uh well, he's, uh, we had this, we had this, we had few feud going. But he, I don't think he recognise me. And I ch- ch- chat to him. And I thought, no, he doesn't recognise me. He's, just, he's not not complaining anyway. He's all very well. Uh, but then suddenly he said, oh, I, I had I had a member, I had a member of a, a men with me.
1: A member of the Danish Parliament
0: can't now remember his name, It was the, the, the one who was in charge of science in folketing and he said, uh, what's his name? Jakob said, uh, there's me, I'm uh, Mayor of Mayor Tassilac, there's him, he's a, 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 a member of Folketing, and there's him, he's a good doctor.
1: A gold doctor. <laughs>
0: So we know what we're talking about, don't we? So it became quite, quite clear that didn't didn't did know who I was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm Julie Hollis, and you've been listening to Polar Podcasts. In the next episode we hear from Professor Alan Nutman about starting out in the 1970s as a field assistant leading to lifelong Greenland research on some of the world's oldest rocks.